Being a professional isn't about the money you make, the position you hold, your level of expertise or fame. It's the motivation and the attitude you bring to your work. A desire for always learning and improving and balancing your creative output with getting the business done. Welcome and join the Creating Pros. Hi, and welcome back to Creating Pros. I'm your host, Jim Nettles. And this week, we're going to talk about something that is really kind of a fundamental idea to me and one that really, the particular case we're going to be talking about this week, really brings up a lot of kind of conflicts for me. Uh, we're going to talk about the current resolution of the lawsuit against the Internet Archive. Now, for those of you who may or may not have been following this, you may have seen the blip about it. Um, at the beginning of the pandemic, the Internet Archive launched something that they called the National Emergency Library. What it was was they opened up their archives and sort of turned off their own internal rules to allow anybody to access any of the books and any of the materials within their library. They did this because, of course, they were looking and saying, hey, we want to make sure that information is there and available to everyone. And while this sounds like a really good and positive thought and concept at the beginning of it, I want to pause there for a moment and talk a little bit about the history of the Internet Archive. I want to talk a little bit about what all this means for intellectual property and talk about kind of the bigger picture as to what the implications are going to be for creators. Um, so I'm going to step back. We're going to go back to 1996. And there is a technologist and a data scientist, a you know library scientist by the name of Brewster Kale. Um, he helped work on a lot of the earliest archiving technologies and saw a lot of great needs. He is also very much an open advocate for information. And in all of this, he found a need and started up something called the Internet Archive. Um, you may have seen it for the, the Wayback Machine, the Internet Archive. There's a lot of tie-in projects and pieces that work with this. And he started this as a nonprofit because the idea was to help capture the idea of this nascent technology of the internet and go out there and try to really kind of create a digital library of websites, media, books, audio, video, literally everything and make it available to the public. Now, one of the fun things is that now we can use the Internet Archive to go back and look at what a website looked like five years ago, 25 years ago, if it existed. And they've been scanning literally thousands of books a day. They've been doing it for, you know, for 25 years. And as of right now, the estimate is they've got approximately 3.6 million copyrighted titles and growing every single day. Now, a lot of the books and titles that they have are in public domain. They were, you know, from prior to 1927. Um, they came through some of the other projects and whatnot. And the idea, I think, sounds positive. It's that idea of creating an open archive, an open library of materials so that they're out there and available to everyone. And really, it's all free. Again, this is a not-profit. They do a lot of, you know, fundraising and things like this. And the Internet Archive is a member of a lot of the, the library associations um, and a lot of the open data foundations. Um, you know, one of the things that we look at is that fundamentally they offer that belief that information is there 
and it should be available and be available to everyone. And this kind of harkens back to something that I've talked about many, many times over the, over the years. And it's that idea that information wants to be free. And we'll probably come back to that quote a little bit later and talk again about the history of that. But again, the idea of the Internet Archive is something that in principle, I think, sounds like a good idea. There's a lot of great benefit to it. We found a lot of societal benefit to it. I've used it myself. I, and in principle, again, I think there's a lot of benefit. But now we have to look at how they actually are executing on their mission. So again, the Internet Archive, the way they function is that they have collected large, massive volumes of media. They have stored it, compressed it, and made it widely available. Where this becomes a problem is when they're doing this with materials that are currently protected under copyright. And this has brought a lot of questions, this has brought a lot of angst, drama, uh, and a lot of even other lawsuits and things over the years about how they were treating and handling this intellectual property. And the reason that this becomes really kind of critical is, and the thing that really pushed this over the edge was what they declared at the beginning of the National Emergency Library. And again, I think this was done with good intention, but as we often see with good intention, the law of unintended consequences can be drastic. And as an author, as a creator, as somebody who has a lot of work out there, um, that is not in the public domain, stuff that is out there that is currently under copyright, under protection. The fact that I do work with a lot of people also creating new work, stuff under protection. I understand the amount of time, effort, investment it takes to go out there and produce books, music, TV, video, all this sort of stuff. Um. And this is where we get into what is really kind of a consistent battle between that idea of content owners and content creators and those people who think that all information should be free without any charge whatsoever. And if you're, you're in any kind of a business whatsoever, this probably makes sense to you that this is a problem. If I, as a creator, have no ability or no right to profit from my work, but yet the, the expectation is that I'm going to continue to provide that work and I'm going to do all the work, all the investment that it takes, not only to create it, but to market it and do everything else. But yet you're going to come back and say, you can't profit from that is un, unsustainable. Because again, everybody's got to make a living from their work. And if I'm a professional author or if I'm a professional creator, I'm an editor, there's a tremendous business out there that helps to run the publishing industry, the filmmaking industry, the music industry, the art industry. And this is one of those things that fundamentally is coming into play as we've talked about, about artificial intelligence and all the things that are coming down. One of the things I am going to talk about here in the next couple of weeks is going to be the findings and how the Copyright Office is now looking at and viewing all of this artificially intelligence uh, generated content and it did line up pretty much with my expectations. But I think there's a lot more to be talked about there as well. But that's not the purpose of this week. When we look at the Internet Archive, 
what they were doing for a lot of years. Um, and again, this is one of those things where I think there is a disconnect in how certain people look at business and industry and creativity. Um, but what Brewster Kale was doing was he has a for-profit company. That for-profit company was buying books and selling them at a profit to the archive. Um, now, whether how what volume of books and how that was being handled, that's one of those things that has come up quite frequently is that despite the fact the Internet Archive stands up as a not-for-profit, um, there are ways that it does appear that Brewster Kale has been profiting from this for a very long time, sometimes pretty significantly, and not to the benefit of the authors and creators that he's pulling information from. But that being aside, what we were seeing was that they would acquire or buy a single copy of a book. They would go through the process of scanning it. And then what they would do is lend them out one at a time to readers. In other words, you could go out there and say, hey, yeah, I would like to read book X. And if it's checked out, put me on the list. And when it gets to me on the list, I can check it out for two weeks, read it, check it back in. The library will distribute it to somebody else. Now, this has been one of those things that there's been a lot of legal question about. There's already been a number of lawsuits about this. But it's been one of those things that sort of was allowed to, to proceed because it was a fight that wasn't necessarily big enough to fight at the time even though this has been somewhat problematic. Now, for those who've never dealt with this before, the way that normal libraries, whether they are public libraries, collegiate libraries, school libraries, whatever else, the way those generally tend to work, especially for digital media, is that they buy those books at a premium cost. How much that premium is really is determined by a number of factors. But um, let's say that you buy that book or that ebook. You may buy it for a certain number of the times to lend it out, or you may buy it for a certain number of uh, a certain length of time. Usually it's about two years. And the way that that works is let's say that you've got the brand new hot New York times bestseller that's out there. And maybe this library system will buy 10 copies of it, knowing that eventually that will settle down. Well, the idea of this pricing is as a publishing house, I'm not going to sell them a copy at a standard cover price for public use. The reason being that the idea is tens, dozens, hundreds of people will read that copy. And those readers, the the fact that the library is buying it for those co or for those readers, you're spreading that cost and expense and that margin for the publisher over the number of readers. They're still getting ultimately what is for most books kind of a discounted rate per reader. But yes, there's there's a reason and an argument for why the pricing is there. There's a lot of other questions sometimes about is this predatory pricing or how should the pricing model work? But in essence, there's already a model that's there. So if we look at this idea that the emergency library was kicked off, what they did was they said, we're going to lift that limitation. In other words, if the book's there, everyone can get it. You can pull it out. You can check it out. You can do whatever you want to. And so this took away the idea and the defense that Brewster Kale and the Internet Archive have used for years, which were, we own a copy. That physical copy's here. We're going to just digitize this so that it is part of our larger collection. 
And in the moment and the act of doing this, the one piece that they had used somewhat as an argument and a defense since they started doing the digitization of books, they basically threw out the window. And once they did that, um, pretty much it took away any uh, or any idea of this defense. And so four publishing houses raised a lawsuit against the Internet Archive. Uh, the Hachette Book Group, um, HarperCollins, John Wiley and Sons, and then Penguin Random House all came and raised a lawsuit accusing the Internet Archive of mass copyright infringement for loaning out digital copies of books without compensation or permission of those owner owners. Now, again, libraries tend to borrow or buy licenses from these publishing houses at a certain premium rate. And they buy a set number of licenses that are set to expand that usage over time. Whereas what the Internet Archive was doing was buying a single copy at general mass market prices. So that's the first step of which they weren't actually going through and working with the publishers or working with the standard lending library model. So by the nature of that, this instantly means that publishers and that the intellectual property owners, the authors themselves, were not being compensated for their work. And so when it was one thing when they were lending them out one at a time, um, even though this was already found to be an infringement, it was one that wasn't pushed in hard enough to go pursue. Opening up the taps and saying that the entire library is there and available and will be available until the pandemic is over was enough for these publishing houses to come and say, okay, we, we can't allow this to work any longer. Um, and so they came, raised this lawsuit on better than 100 specific titles uh, because that was enough of a representative sample to say this is an impact. And what the lawsuit came in and said was, you don't have a digital license. So the, there are several issues that were raised here. Number one was the idea that the Internet Archive was taking a physical copy of a book and transforming that into a digital medium. The second argument here was that because they were transforming that and because it was not bought through the lending library program, they did not have the appropriate license or intellectual property controls in place to be able to do and distribute the way they were. The third big point here is the one that the publishers and the IP owners, the creators, were not being compensated for that work. And there's a few other things that were definitively here in the lawsuit. They all kind of boil down to this. The Internet Archive's argument was that they practice controlled digital lending, saying that their physical copy of a book entitled them to loan out a scanned version. And again, I want to go back to this idea that the lending, uh, the lending library of the, uh, the Internet Archive, their entire stated goal is to provide universal access to all knowledge. And because they declared themselves to be a not-for-profit, they tried to use the argument that they're doing this underneath fair use. So there's a lot of moving pieces here that boil down to some significant fundamentals. 
And so what came out of the lawsuit, and this was towards the end of March, um, in district court, they came out and sided with publishing houses. And some very interesting findings came out of this. I don't think they're surprising um, to anybody that's following it, but I think that they are going to really solidify a lot of case law. The main finding was read as this. At bottom, the Internet Archive's fair use defense rests on the notion that lawfully acquiring a copyrighted print book entitles the recipient to make an unauthorized copy and distribute it in place of the print book so long as, as it does not simultaneously lend out the print book. And they came out and said that the Internet Archive going through this act was actually making a derivative work by turning the print book into an ebook and distributing and said that you do not have a right to do so. Now, that sounds like a lot of legality, and it is, but fundamentally what this really boils down to is that the case finding says that a company is selling a product in a particular fixed form for a particular fixed use. And so if I sell a print book, it means that the purchaser of that book has a very specific but limited right to how they use it. Now, one of the things that has come up a lot over the years is that idea of, I hold a physical print book. What can I do with it? Well, I can read it. I can lend it to someone. I can gift it to someone. Um, and I can even sell it. You know, we all have seen, been in used bookstores. I've taken, taken advantage of many used bookstores over the years. There have been cases through in the past that came and said used bookstores were depriving the authors of royalties. And so there was a lot of question at one point about whether or not you as the owner of a book had a right to sell it or resell it. And that's one of those things that really they've come down and said, no, it is a physical medium. It exists in one physical fixed form and it can be bought and sold like any other asset. It can't be represented as new. Um, and so, you know, you're buying a copy and this really, this idea fundamentally goes back to the original history of copyright law of the earliest days of internet or of uh, intellectual intellectual property law. And this is the idea that copyright really stands for that idea of the right to copy. If I owned a copy of an elaborate ornamental, let's say Bible, because the vast majority of books at the time were Bibles. If I owned that physical copy, I could give someone else a right to copy and replicate my copy of the text, the print, the artwork, everything else. I had the right to sell that book, that asset, give it to someone else. But when we look at the modern world we live in, we're now going through a lot of legal changes, looking at how we look at the difference between a physical piece of medium and what is digital, what is software. And much of the case law we see and that we're dealing with in this space looks at digital mediums 
very differently from how we look at print books. And what do I mean by that? Well, number one, if it's in a digital medium, I can actually say that you only have rights to use it and to access it. You may have paid for it, but what you've paid for is access and license to use it. But it's not actually yours. We see this in a lot of different licensing agreements, not only in the idea of a book or a game or a piece of software or software as a service. We also see this in the new technology that's put in a lot of cars. We have seen this pass through case law around John Deere tractors, where if it's software, you may have bought it, you may have licensed it, you may be using it on your own system, but you don't own it. And this finding really kind of reinforces that. The second thing it really reinforces is just because you own a print copy doesn't mean you have a right to scan it. Does not mean that you have a right to distribute it otherwise. And while this sounds somewhat logical, if I own, uh, you know, and this is one of the things that has come up in case law before, is if I own something on CD, can I create a mixtape? If I own something on CD, can I put it on my own personal iPod? And while that's kind of gone back and forth some about that, as long as I was using my copy for personal use, the answer is yes, generally. There's still some, some shadiness there, but generally, if I own it, I have a right to use it myself through my own devices. But without having that physical medium, a CD, a hard drive, or you know, a, a, a USB stick, something that it's physically on, that I own, that I've bought, that I own that exact copy, um, a couple of other things come into play. And this is one of those things that's really, I think, this piece of case law, even though it was not meant to handle it, may also ultimately provide some interesting basis for other things that will come. What do I mean by this? Well, one of the things that we've seen as of late was that digital books are being updated for their content. Um, certain things that are considered problematic or whatnot are being redone, rewritten in books and copies. And if you owned a digital copy of that book, you did not have a choice about whether you keep the old version and accept the new one. What we see is that the, your just book is automatically being updated. So the version you bought, licensed, and may have read for no longer exists in that digital form and is no longer available in that digital form. And so this is going to be one of those questions that I know that there's already some questions of lawsuits floating around because if I own physical copy of the book, you can't retroactively go out there and fix a typo or rewrite the story. Other things I see coming out of this, it's also going, think, going to reinforce some of the arguments that have been used around piracy and other digital libraries that are out there. Is This is going to reinforce that idea just because you have bought a copy does not mean you have the light license or light or right to extend that availability to anyone else. Looking back at the original quote, and I go back to, and I won't go the, give the whole history of it, but going back to Stuart Brand at a hackers conference in 84, they actually came in and said, 
just because information exists, you know, the, the actual quote itself is on the one hand you have is that information sort of wants to be expensive because it's so valuable. The right information and the right place just changes your life. On the other hand, information almost always wants to be free because the costs of getting it out there is getting lower and lower all the time. So you have these two ideas fighting against each other. When we look at this case of the Internet Archive, I think that we've not seen a more definitive or a much better example of this. Because for good, for bad, for ugly, it costs a lot of money to bring a book to market. It costs a lot of money to bring music, film, art to market. Not only creation, not only compensating the creator, not only compensating everybody else who goes into that production process, not only the idea of that company being able to make a profit because, again, companies exist to make money. Creators that go unpaid have to find other ways to make a living to support themselves and if they so decide their work. Foundations like the Internet Archive, I can respect the idea that they want to make of information available to everyone. We want the freedom of ideas. We want the freedom of expression. We want for people to be able to look at and gain knowledge, gain experience, go on an adventure in a piece of fiction, gain education from a textbook. But at the same time, the technology that we have that's available to do that now makes these things all but free. At the same time, the process, the cost of creating many of these things is not. The cost is going up more and more. Or where we are lowering those costs, it is at the expense of the creators ultimately. When we look at a platform, for example, like Amazon, Amazon has been a, one of the great dichotomies. On one hand, they have created the largest marketplace for books, physical and digital mediums. They have really solidified digital books. They have solidified the use of audiobooks. They didn't create these concepts, but they have certainly solidified them. They have created the idea for indie and small press markets that 20 years ago just wasn't viable. At the same time, while they've created and lowered the cost for producing many of these things and have created this great industry out there, I can compare this a little bit um, to a conversation I was having at a convention this weekend. One of the great things about the time we live in is because you can go anywhere, anytime, and find something to watch or listen to to satisfy and address any want or desire. You know, if I want science fiction or I want a fantasy TV show or movie or something like that, virtually that supply is now endless. Somebody that is born today 
and we sit in the middle of the writer's strike currently. But someone that is born today, if they started watching TV or movies or whatever else, and they had a hundred year lifespan and not another piece of medium was produced, they would need multiples of those hundred year lifespans to even make a dent in most genres because there's so much of it out there. You know, going back to when, we were, when I was growing up, when there were three channels and there were four, then there were five, then we had cable. Now we have between streaming and with all the different cable networks and satellite networks and YouTube and all the different toys and technologies and capabilities to create medium out there and deliver it means that there is something out there for everyone. What it also means is that it is a harder time to find, reach, and establish a relationship with a fan base. It is much more costly to get through the noise to be discovered, which means it's not just that time and the money and the cost of being a creator, bringing that work to light, to actually do those things to take something from an idea to something that's published and printed, but to also then spend the time and the resources to reach that audience. The Internet Archive would say or argue that they're making that easier because they're giving you a different marketplace and a different point of delivery. The problem with that is I'm not being compensated for it as creator. The problem with that is my costs go up every day and I am competing against more and more people and more and more sources every day. I believe that this is a good thing because the more that's out there, the more ideas we introduce into the market and the more good work that gets put out there means that people are exploring their creativity and they are trying to bring new and good work into the world. But much like we have with the shift from two, three, four networks and a small handful of publishers that really determined if you would ever be seen or read and meant that there was this tremendous fight to become a writer or become an actor, become a musician, for a small number of slots that we have made that opportunity near infinite also means that for those people who make the fight and make it all the, all the way through to become that author, that actor, that musician, that also means that they're also fighting through a much greater sea and just having made that fight to get to the point of being a professional creator means that they're now just starting that uphill struggle to find their audience. I spend a lot of time talking about that idea of finding, cultivating audience, reaching people, because ultimately, if we spend enough time doing that, odds are we will eventually connect with people. There's absolutely a factor of luck in it. There's absolutely a factor of luck. But that luck is based on a lot of time, a lot of work, 
and a lot of resources. Looking at how many people are now viewing and treating copyrighted work, while digital medium makes it accessible to all, the problem is we also now are much less likely to value it appropriately. We don't value an ebook the same way we value the physical book I can hold in my hand because we, we, we assign a greater value to something I'm physically holding. Even though the act of creating it really is the exact same, whether what fixed form it's in, the only difference is the material cost and what it would cost to put in your hands. And so while that is a viable, valuable cost, the value of that hard printed version gives you more options and it's in a fixed form that's yours. You own it. Somebody can't take that from you. If somebody decides that your work is no longer viable for their distribution platform, they can't just take a book away out of your house tomorrow. That ebook can disappear. And it has. We've seen this happen with many platforms over time. So now that I've kind of gone a little away and off topic of this lawsuit of the Internet Archive and the idea of the nonprofit library and making all of this available to everyone. Again, I look at this lawsuit both with hope and a little trepidation. The trepidation comes from the fact that there are a lot of people that have looked at this and really it's brought animosity towards publishers and creators because people are looking and saying, oh, that's a greedy company. That's a greedy, you know, that's a greedy author. That's a greedy musician. But for those people who have never gone through and tried to write a book, write a piece of music, film a movie. They don't understand what it takes to make that happen. And my trepidation for all of my creators out there is that I've already seen and had conversations with people who, because of some of the feedback they've gotten, because they wrote for some of these publishers. In a couple of cases, I know a few of the authors who were quoted as being in these lawsuits. The amount of slapback some of them have gotten on social media and emails, other stuff like this, comes from people that don't recognize that this is still a business and that there is value in the creative output. There's a value in the creative work. But the hope that I get from this is this as well, that a lot more people actually you're stopping to take a look that just because something is online doesn't mean that it's not valuable. That just because it's online in a digital form I can pull up doesn't mean that it doesn't take a lot of time and effort. One of the things that we see, you know, in terms of reviews and commentaries online is, oh my God, you had a typo on page 27. I can assure you, there is not a perfect piece of work out there. Not anything written in the last couple hundred years, at least. Because we're all still human. 
And sometimes these small imperfections, you know, I'll go back to Neil Gaim's quote. If something made it through all of the different editorial processes before something gets to market, then that's a typo that fought to live. I can tell you, I, you know, despite the fact I have stuff to go through editors, regardless if it comes out indie published or traditionally published, there's always something and you inevitably find it when you're doing a public reading in front of an audience. And every time I come across it, I actually try to call it out. I'll highlight that guy. I'll take the mistake because it's part of what makes us human. It's part of what makes creativity so valuable. And this goes in line with a lot of the things that I'm seeing online with people rushing to use ChatGPT and Dolly and other Bard and some of the other tools going and saying that they're going to become creative for a profit, ignoring the fact of are they being creative or are they just trying to go for a money grab? Because I've seen a lot of people push programs and ideas that, oh, you can be an, um, you know, you're an author overnight and you'll be raking in the millions. Really what I see is people destroying a potential career in a lot of cases. Other cases, all they're doing is creating a lot of noise for publishers, for Amazon. They're throwing a lot of garbage up there. And I can tell you that there are technologies that are coming that are going to really clean this up, but it's going to take a little bit of time. So while we look at this lawsuit coming through to say no, I think the biggest value out of this lawsuit is a legal recognition that the creative output of people is valuable, no matter what form it's in. And I think that for everyone who takes away that idea that if you've written a book and if only one person ever sees it and that one person is you, it's valuable. If you hit a book and you sell thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of copies, that work is valuable too. But that's also an opportunity to make a living as a creative. That's an opportunity to make a living bringing new ideas, bringing new interpretations, and really even often just retelling stories that bring value to people's lives. This court case, I think, is the recognition that again tells all of the people in my creative community, there's value in what you do. Don't forget that. So until next week, I'm Jim Nettles. This has been Creating Pros, and it's time to get back to work.